Good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're focusing on a new section of Scripture now in the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 11. If you were attentive, you might even seen that our screens have changed to different Roman numerals. Young people, those are Roman numerals. <laughs> that first one, a V is a 5. The VII, that adds up to 7. Um, we're looking at, I think that's right. Is that right? Yes, that's right. We're, we're looking at and a focus now on new life in Christ, starting here with Romans chapter 5. Uh, this passage, I couldn't have read it with any more passion than Pastor Al did there just a few minutes ago. And I was so glad that he came up here with that joy because the theme and the title for this message today is Unshakable Joy. Two Sundays ago, um, I was sitting with my family in our living room and we had just finished up lunch. We were probably watching something on the television when we felt some vibrations in the house and even up on the mantle of our fireplace, I saw some things maybe just shift a little bit. And my wife said, I think we just had an earthquake. And I thought, no, we don't have those in East Tennessee. I said, it must have been a really big plane that just flew a little bit too close and too low. You know, we men know everything. Uh, well, then she, she shared with me an article from WBIR that appeared that day. And she said, uh, here's what it said. People in West Knoxville felt some tremors Sunday afternoon after a small earthquake shook up the area. This was on Sunday, October 10th. Maybe you felt it too. According to, this is interesting for us to know, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, a 2.5 magnitude earthquake struck near Farragut and Turkey Creek around 1.30 on Sunday. So we live on Lovell Road. We were within that epicenter of where those plates shifted a little bit. Hundreds of people reported feeling this. Maybe some of you were some of those hundreds. Small earthquakes like these apparently are common around East Tennessee. I never knew that. We live in the East Tennessee Seismic Zone, a band that stretches from northeastern Alabama to southwestern Virginia. And it's understood to be one of the most active quake zones in the United States. Isn't that crazy? So be careful. If you ever feel a, a, a slight vibration or a quake, don't argue with your, your wife, men. <laughs> it was likely an earthquake. Now, this is illustra illustrative, I think, just of my own experience of being a Christian. Certain times, I feel shaken when it comes to the stability in terms of what we've been learning so far. You know, there, there were some very hard-hitting things in chapters 2 and 3 of Romans. Those chapters focused a lot on our failures, a lot on our sins, a lot on how when it comes to judgment, if all we've got is who we are and bring that before God, we're in big, big trouble. So Romans 2 and 3 say that so much more eloquently than I just did, but that's the summary. And so 
in my life, whenever I start to act like what I see in Romans 2 and 3, I get a bit shaken. And I think that that is the case for Christian people in general. When we start to live in those patterns of judgmentalism or sin of various dark shades and kinds, we can be shaken. And we learn that the solution is faith that God grants through Christ and his work for us, that it's not of us. And even then we might think, well, do I have enough faith or do I have the right kind of faith? Was it genuine enough? Shaken faith might make us feel just like the effects of an earthquake do to the solid ground we're standing on. We may feel quaked in the inside, not knowing quite how to respond. We need to learn to respond how Paul responds and how he instructs us to respond in Romans chapter 5. The theme that we will see here today is that Christians rejoice with unshakable joy for all God has done for them in Christ. We rejoice with unshakable joy for all that God has done for us in Christ. The main pronoun that's in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5 is we. You know, Paul has shifted from chapter 1 and saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I have received this charge to be the apostle delivering this message. To in chapters 2 and 3, talking about the whole world, they. Or in talking to the Jewish person that he is setting up as an opponent and debating, you. But now when we come to chapter 5, no fewer than 16 times he uses we or the associated pronouns I or our or, or us. This passage is instructive for Christian people in community together and how they ought to be reasoning about their life of faith, how they should take the truths that God has said and apply them both now to their pasts and in our thoughts about what's to come. So that's the main outline today, joy of present salvation joy of past salvation, and joy of future salvation. So let's begin with point one. Verses one to five set up for us the joy that we have in our present salvation. And there's a phrase that Paul starts with. He says, therefore, since we have, verse one, been justified by faith, we have. And then he goes through and he tells us some things that we currently have right now as a result of our justified status. And this is what Paul will do in each case, talking about our present, our past, and our future. He reasons from what Jesus has done and what God the Father has done through his son for you. You take that and you apply what to do as a result of when you feel shaken. You take the truth and you reason from the beginning of what God has done for you, not who you are or what you have done, but what God has done for you. So let's see what God has done and provided through our justification. Remember, justification 
is God saying to us, you are acquitted of all the charges against you. All your sins are no longer held to your account. Furthermore, you have been credited with all the accomplishments of my beloved son, and you are my beloved child now. If you have come to God in faith, believing in what Jesus has done, God has justified you. He has declared you to be righteous. That's very different than saying God has made you righteous. <laughs> That's not what this says. It says that he has declared you to be righteous. So if you've come today as a Christian not feeling particularly righteous, don't count yourself out. Because this has to do with the declaration of God. This is the activity of God in the life of a person of faith who has come to Jesus repenting and believing and saying of that person, not guilty and beloved. This is good news. So from that identity, now let's figure out what Paul says we have. We have in the first place, peace with God. The text of scripture tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is not a result of a feeling we have. This is an established relationship that we now have that Paul later in verse 11 describes as reconciliation. Whenever you bring two people who have been fighting back together and you help them to relate together again so that they are no longer at war, that's reconciliation. What Christ has done for us is brought us back to the Father and introduced us to the Father based on his accomplishments for us. So that as we relate to God now, God looks at us with only peace in his heart. The relationship that God has established with us is a relationship of a father to a child. We have now received peace with God. This does not mean how you feel towards God at this level. It does not mean whether you feel peaceful. You might be in very turbulent times right now. This does not mean that your life as a Christian will be placid and calm all the time. But it means no matter what is happening to you, your domain and your right that you have received from God is no more war with God, but peace, shalom in the Hebrew sense, wholeness, soundness, everything as it should be, and no one can take that away from you. Furthermore, he goes on to say, we stand in grace. We have standing in grace. As you read on, it says, we have this peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, Romans 5.2. Through Jesus, we have received something, access into grace. Now, obtained access, behind that is a Greek word that has to do with an introduction that you get to somebody very important and authoritative. And it's actually the sense of someone who knows that person, who brings you into their presence and vouches for you and gives you full access into what that leader or ruler, in this case a king, 
might decide to do with you. You know, there's that story in the book of Esther, how she comes before the king. And if the king does not give the scepter down in acceptance of her being there, even though she was his wife, he could put her to death for intruding where she wasn't allowed. But there is a disposition by the king of grace in extending the scepter. And in this case, this is what we get when we come to faith. Not only do we have peace with God, meaning, all right, well, we're not at war with God anymore so we can get about our lives. No, now we're invited to come into the very throne room of God where God rules and he accepts us not because of what we've done or who we are, but because of his son. And if we think that God is begrudging in this, it was God who sent his son to invite us and to bring us and to give us this access that now results in our standing in grace. Right? There is no way for you to be shaken in the presence of God. And you are not only given access, but Jesus ushers you into the presence of God and he makes you stand. This is the solid ground that we can't find here on this earth. Nothing will lead to this stability but Jesus and him ushering us into the standing in grace. And the Bible says we have it. This isn't something that we have to achieve. It's not something that we have to be good enough to eventually get. No, by Jesus and through him, we have it. This is a present reality. So even now, you can go into the presence of God and he welcomes you as his beloved child. As we sang this morning, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. All of these realities that we sang about. I love that um, insertion into that old song because it allows us not only to say what we're coming to God for with just as I am, but who is the just as we are. It is all those things, right? Brokenness, woundedness, right? This is how we come. And again, it is not that we come perfected. We come at the bidding and accomplishments of Jesus into the presence of God the Father. Amen. Through him, we stand in grace and we rejoice in hope. This is another thing that Paul says we have. It's rejoicing. We rejoice in hope. Look at what verse 2 continues to say. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There are a couple of things that Paul is going to say that we rejoice in as Christians, but he begins with this. As we consider that access we have and the peace with God that we have, we understand that our destiny concerns the glory of God. When we think about how we're going to end up, it's not just that we're let off the hook as Christians, or even that we're beloved now, but as we think about our eventual outcome, we will share in the glory of God. God created us to be the perfect representation of him on earth, but that was ruined in the fall in the Garden of Eden. But Jesus, through his accomplishments, has started that process again. 
so that as we have our peace with God and as we stand in grace, we continue to be worked on by God through his spirit over time. And eventually, we will love what God loves and we will hate what God hates and we will love every bit of it because we're in the presence of God, imaging God and enjoying what he has said about himself, that at his right hand, there are not burdens forevermore, pleasures forevermore. I'm in this for pleasure, but the highest pleasures are not those that we grasp onto on this earth, but God himself and transformation in his presence. That's not something that we can imagine very well here, but we hope in it. And hope is not something that might be. Hope, when it is used in this way in the Bible, is a certainty that just hasn't happened yet, but is as certain as the day begins with the sun and sets with the sun. We will see this take place. We will share in the glory of God. But not only this, verse 3 says that we also rejoice in suffering. This is where it seems to take a turn because up to this point, it's been all positive things. But Paul knows that in this life, there are difficulties that we face. And so just like we rejoice in hope, we likewise rejoice in hope even in our sufferings. Verse 3 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. There's a lot of words here. I'm going to leave the verse up there on the screen, and I'm going to do my best to walk through what those words mean. I hope that you can see kind of a chain happening here of words. One leads to the next, which leads to another, another. You begin with hope, and you end with hope. One way or another, God is in the process of leading you through great things and difficult things, all for the sake of giving you hope. What you think might be there to burden and drag you down and it seems to be proof that God does not love you or is not for you. Paul instructs us to see those things that are happening to us through the lens of our justified status. We are forgiven and we are loved. Therefore, our sufferings have a place and we want to learn what God is doing in the midst of them. So the suffering here is the Greek word flipsis, and it sometimes is translated afflictions. It has to do with pressure. Um, if you've ever carried something really heavy, you feel the pressure of it weighing you down. Gravity works that way. Trials work that way too. You can have something very heavy that you're dealing with in your life that just feels like it's a heavy weight that's been settled on you, right? Especially when it comes to the knowledge that we are Christian people living in a fallen world that is against God. We have certain realities that we know are in place. We are following God. We serve him. But at the same time, we have difficulties that happen to us because we are believers. And we are told 
to rejoice in the midst of this. We are told that we rejoice in our sufferings. I know that the Apostle Paul did not like beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks and pain. He didn't write in the Bible that it was good and that Christians should seek those things out. He did not advocate masochism, which is delight in pain. That's ungodly, that's wicked. And God is not commanding that. The rejoicing that God tells us to take on and to consider comes from our justified status to the present day sufferings. And the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that our rejoicing is not a make it until, or fake it until you make it. It is submitting your trials under the sovereign hand of God and seeing how he will lead you and trusting that he will get you where he wants you to go. Now, how is this going to happen? Well, we need to get some endurance. Endurance comes from the Greek word hippomene, and it, and it means perseverance under intense weight. Some years ago when I was, well, many years ago when I was a teenager, we still, in my parents' home, had a garage door that was not one of these new fiberglass doors, but one of those big, heavy wooden doors. And there were times when that door uh, would slam shut when we least expected it. And if anyone was underneath it, it was a very dangerous thing. Some of you who are old enough, about my age or older, might understand. You know, the image that I've always had in mind is if a little child was trapped under a door like that and it started to slam and would severely injure the child, I don't know any parent who wouldn't run and put him or herself under that garage door and hold it for as long as they needed to in order that their child could get out of the way. That's an image of this type of endurance. It's holding up under intense weight for as long as you have to. This kind of patience that the Lord is working out in us is different than the patience that he has in Romans 2 chapter, chapter 2 verse 4, where it says that his patience is meant to lead us to repentance. In that case, there's a patience that is like having a really long fuse that never ends up being a bomb at the end. It just keeps going and going and going and putting up with lots of stuff. There's an element of that in this, and that's where the two types of patience don't, you know, differ too much. But we do at times feel an intense weight, something that presses us down. And what God is doing in the midst of that is producing character. That's a word that you see up there as well. The word is dokimos. And sometimes in our Bibles, I know the, the New American Standard as well as the, the Christian Standard Bible translates that word proven character. And the reason why it does that is because there's this element of being approved in that word character. Sometimes we can define character this way. Um, it could be, uh, character can be defined as what you do without thinking. What you do without thinking. That's what teacher Dallas Willard of spiritual disciplines, uh, fame in Christian circles has said. And one of my teachers in university compared our character 
who we are to what's in a tea bag. You could write whatever you wanted on the label of the tea bag. You could call it whatever you wanted. You could call it peach tea. You could call it raspberry fusion. But if you put it in the hot water, what's actually in that tea bag is going to be revealed. And it might be just plain black tea, right? What we find is that our lives are very similar. We may say about ourselves that we're cool and calm. We may say that we're easygoing. But when we put ourselves in hot water or find ourselves in the hot water of pressures, of afflictions, of trials, what really is true about us always comes out. It's the reason why when you are feeling the weight and the pressures of life, you may snap in anger at someone. When you might think of yourself as very calm and cool, you might actually reveal that inside of you is an attitude that is very quick to criticize, very quick to be worried, very quick to be angry. Character, in its, by itself, doesn't do us any good because really we are who we are and the hot water of life is going to reveal that what we need is approved character proven character that comes as god works out his work in us and he works that so often during the difficulties of life through the trials that you face what is testimony to the world around us is not that these trials destroy Christians, but that the trials actually make them, though outwardly destroyed, inwardly alive. Nobody likes to go through difficulties. I don't know any Christian martyr who has ever rejoiced for the fact that they went into prison and were beaten. But through that, I have heard so many stories of Christian martyrs who have testified of in the midst of that trial knowing something deeper than they ever had experienced before of the love and the presence of God. I'm going to share something about that very soon. What does all this produce? Hope. Hope that we're not on our own, that we have a destiny that we're heading to, that we actually can take confidence in the power of God, in the midst of that suffering, so that we will be like Jesus. And how much of a rejoice, how, how rejoice, well, how much rejoicing I tend to do myself when I can see some change taking place in me and how encouraging it is for other people to say, hey, I've noticed you're changing in that area where you used to be like this you're starting to be a little bit more like Jesus. Try saying that to one another sometime. Look for the evidences of grace and hope and peace in the life of other people and encourage them in how you see Jesus at work in them and trust that he is at work in you, whether it is in the good times or the bad. Well, I think a transition to the second point here, I just want to say, these things are all good. Even the suffering for the sake of hope at the end, that still is a good thing and we can rejoice in that. But sometimes it's difficult 
to enjoy the things in the present if you're still not quite sure about what happened in your past. You might find it difficult to believe that these things are so if, and especially if you're going through a time of suffering that feels like a heavy weight on you right now, what you need is encouragement to understand the joy of past salvation. In the second place, we're going to look at verse 5 and understand that Paul is telling us that hope that God is leading to does not put us to shame. You know, I think there's nothing that the enemy of our soul would love more than to derail you on what happened in the past, your salvation. He would love nothing more than to separate your current existence from your past and what Jesus has done for you. He does not want us to reason like Paul does from our justification to the present day. So in order to attack where the enemy attacks and to lift up the shield of faith, let's look at verse five. It says there, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, I've used an illustration here before in the past, even here when I've preached, but I think it bears repeating now on a couple of of points. I, I don't think we always remember everything that each of us says. And sometimes things just are so helpful they need to be said again. I can remember in The Pilgrim's Progress, reading that book, when Pilgrim or Christian, the man who's the main character, gets to this somewhat weird house called the House of the Interpreter, where he sees a lot of living illustrations of the Christian life. One of the last rooms that the interpreter leads him through to help him understand his Christian experience is this house where one of the walls is burning. And there's a man in there who's just dumping bucket after bucket of water on the wall, trying to put out the fire. And then Christian goes around to the other side. You may recall this. He looks around and there's another, another man who's applying oil to the base of the fire. So that no matter what happens, the fire never goes out, much to the consternation of the man on the other side with the bucket. Comes to find out that that man represents Satan. And he comes to find out that the one with the oil represents the Holy Spirit and the one who has the power to convey the grace and the love of Jesus to us. The reason that we don't go out, the reason that we're not shaken off of our foundation and ultimately become apostate is because God's love has been poured out into our hearts as Christians. This is a reality that is done and continues to have ramifications in the present. Your past is a past that has been blessed by the presence of God's Spirit. You see, the first mention of the Holy Spirit comes here in verse 5. God's Spirit has been given to us. Some look at this and think about this love as a pouring out of God in a special way in the life of the believer. And so they say, even good preachers like Martin Lloyd-Jones would say in the past, this is not an experience that every Christian has, but he says it's a special experience that the most holy or the most reverent of God experience. That's baloney. The language here. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he's he's with the Lord and he knows better now. (laughs) This section of scripture tells us the Holy Spirit has been given to us. 
This doesn't exclude any Christian. It includes all Christians. And Paul wants us to rejoice in that. We're not alone. Now, I can concede that the Bible tells us we can grieve the Holy Spirit sometimes. We can make his heart sad because of choices that we make. Nevertheless, he is the oil on the flame of your heart. And that love of God is poured into you, sometimes in great measures. I've had times when I have experienced the love of God in ways that I could not have imagined through some of the darkest times. There have been other times when it's felt very subtle, or almost like the supply is not quite as heavy. And yet, I know that God loves me. But friends, there's an even deeper way that we know God's love. Not only has his spirit been poured out to us and his love through the spirit in a never-ending supply, but God's son has died for us. This is the measure of God's love. Look at verses six through eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For a while, I'm going to have an image of Pastor Al waving his flag into the gates of heaven with Romans 5.8. That's good. I like that. I think that's appropriate. While still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, we've perhaps heard stories of when soldiers will jump on a grenade for their fellow soldiers. It would, it would be ridiculous and contrary to most human reasoning to hear, you know, in this case of like a, a Russian soldier jumping on a grenade for a Ukrainian soldier. But that's the kind of language that Paul uses here to describe what Jesus has done. But it's even more glorious than that. The Bible describes us in verse 6, as weak, ungodly, in verse 8, as sinners and as enemies of God. And in the midst of all of that status of who we were, not regarding God at all, not caring about God, not wanting anything to do with God, Jesus died for us. He died for me while I was sinning. He died for you while you were sinning. This is the greatness of God's love. There's a story that comes from the life of Richard Wormbrand, Wormbrand, Lutheran minister and founder of the Voices of the Martyr. Uh, he spent about 14 years in prison. He described in his book a time when he was close to death in the prison infirmary. He was lying on a cot suffering from pneumonia in both lungs as well as intestinal pneumonia and a variety of other things. It was Christmas Eve and the only company that Wormbrand had was a priest on the right side, on his cot, and a communist torturer on his left. Here's how he described it. At my right hand was a priest by the name of Isku. He was abbot of a monastery. This man, perhaps in his 40s, had been so tortured he was near to death. But his face was serene. He spoke about his hope of heaven and of his love of Christ, about his faith. He radiated joy. On my left side was the communist torturer who had tortured this priest almost to death. He had been arrested by his own comrades. And then 
Wurmbrand inserts some advice to us. Don't believe the newspapers when they say that the communists only hate Christians and Jews. It's not true. They simply hate. They hate everybody. They hate Jews. They hate Christians. They hate anti-Semites. They hate anti-Christians. They hate everybody. One communist hates the other communist. They quarrel among themselves. And when they quarrel one communist with the other, they put the other one in jail and torture him just like a Christian and they beat him. This is what happened to the man on his left. One night, this communist former torturer, cried out to Richard Vernbrand, pray for me, pastor, I can't. The weight of my sins is too much. But the priest on his right got help from two prisoners who supported him on either side until he was able to hobble over and sit on the edge of his communist torturer's bedside where he began to gently caress the soldier's head. And here's what Richard Vernbrand heard him say. You are young, You did not know what you were doing. I love you with all of my heart. But he did not just say the words. You can say love, and it's just a a word of four letters. But he really loved. I love you with all my heart. And then he went on. If you'd like to follow along, I have a quote for it. If I, who am a sinner, can love you so much, imagine Christ, who is love incarnate, how much he loves you. And all the Christians whom you have tortured know that they forgive you. They love you. And Christ loves you. He wishes you to be saved more than you wish to be saved. You wonder if your sins can be forgiven. He wishes to forgive your sins more than you wish your sins to be forgiven. He desires for you to be with him in heaven much more than you wish to be with him in heaven. He is love. You only need to turn to him and repent. That night, that abuser repented of his sins and turned to Christ. And that priest went back over to his bed and died. And that communist soldier died that same night. And together they went to heaven, united under the banner of God's grace and peace. A wonder for us, friends, if we think about how we should go forward. And we need to think about the joy of our future salvation as we close. As Paul concludes this joy-filled section of the blessings of the justified status, he uses a phrase three times that heightens the blessings and rejoicing that he has already spelled out. That phrase is, much more. You see that in the text in verses 9 through 11, much more, or more than that. Paul is excited, and he's building on the great and wonderful case of our present salvation and the past realities of our salvation to describe and define what we can expect as we go forward. If you think the present is really good because of what Jesus has done for you, you've not seen anything yet. Paul says, more than that. And he builds by a great crescendo to tell us what we can expect. Verses 9 and 10. Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Again, reasoning from our past justification by God, not by what we do, to now think about the future. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So 
two things here that are linked together. On the one hand, we will be saved from wrath. Because of Jesus, we will be saved from wrath. You know, in the Jewish mind, back in the time of Jesus, justification didn't happen until you were standing before God. And then God would look back on your life and determine if you were a just person or a wicked person, and then pronounce the judgment on you, either acquitted or guilty. Jesus commented on this in Matthew chapter 12, as he talked about the fruit that comes out of our lives over the course of a lifetime, will it be good fruit or will it be rotten fruit? And he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. I preached, I was in the hub, but I preached from Romans 2, that if there was a tape recorder or an MP3 recorder or some kind of recorder around your neck all the time, that every word you say would be all that God requires to either condemn or acquit you in the final judgment. You would appear before him and all he would have to say is, let's just press play and hear what you said. But here is the amazing news. You and I will not be judged for those things someday. This is something I still have to get through my head because I know that we're going to appear before the judgment seat of God, but God will not bring up those things for which Jesus died. God will not hold me accountable or you accountable for what Jesus has paid for, for you. This is, I don't hear too many amens, so I wonder if you agree with this. <laughs> I, I want you to think about this. This is where Paul's gospel seems scandalous, and this is when a bunch of legalists start making up stuff to say that, no, 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 Paul didn't mean that. It's not that good. You really need to be as obedient as you can, and then maybe if you're circumcised, you might be justified at the end. No, you are justified, my friend, because God declares that you are justified, not because of what you have done or not done. This is the mic-dropping reality of grace. This is a result of the blood of Jesus Christ. And I just, I mean, this is me getting passionate, right? <laughs> I've reached it. This is the reality. We don't have to fear judgment of the wrath of God. Amen? Amen? Because Jesus has paid for our offenses by his blood. This is good news. This is how we reason now. I don't need to fear the judgment to come for God has paid for all my offenses by his blood. Now, God is in the process of making you what he has declared you to be. Don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm saying get a, a free get-out-of-hell ticket. I'm saying that when you're in this, God is fully in it. And if we reason from our justified status to find out what he is going to do at the end, our hearts are filled with joy I don't have to fear the wrath of God. This is the wrath that's coming, that will be revealed, that is not yet here. That's not for me, and that's not for you if you are in Christ. 
And likewise, we will be saved by Jesus' life. Paul will teach so much more about this as we go forward, particularly in Romans chapter 6. He has a whole section of how because Jesus is alive, that it's not just his death that's paid for our offenses, it is his resurrected life that seals this deal. Right? We are forgiven people. We are people who have been accepted. We stand in grace. We have peace with God. We have the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts and continues like a never-ending flow. And that's been anchored back at the cross. Jesus died while we were his enemies, while we were sinning. Therefore, we need not fear the wrath of God. And even now in this life, the promise of Jesus is that he is married to us and he's never going to get a divorce. He is with us and he will never abandon us. And the product that he says is coming is hope. And so Paul, in conclusion, just throws back his hands. You can see this old Jewish apostle, wherever he was when he wrote this, just saying, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The end here isn't to be something. The end is to be with God, <laughs> to worship him, to have him, to know him, to be restored in relationship to him. All praise to Jesus. Amen. So a response today, friends, would be to rejoice, as Doug shared with us when we sang, to believe again. If we've come here today under the pressures of life and the afflictions of life, if you feel pressed and you're bearing up under that with the endurance that God grants, rejoice. If you're feeling good today and you know that these realities are true, or whether you're feeling bad, know that these realities are true and rejoice. Pastor Doug is going to come wherever he is and lead us again. I'm going to pray as he makes his way up here. There he is. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you are so good. You are gracious to us. You have led us every step of the way to this point in, in the study of Romans. But it's our, our lives before you that Paul is passionate to help us understand. And now, in light of our justified status, there's unshakable joy there great rejoicing in the heart of a Christian who has understood these things and embraced them by faith. I pray that you would help us to believe and you would help us to express our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.